Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I am interviewing Christine Figener. Dr. Christine Figener, who is a marine biologist. Now, that's awesome all in itself. We're going to talk about marine biology. We're going to talk about why she decided back as a two-year-old in uh, in Germany, she decided, I want to be a, a sea explorer, an ocean explorer, and that turned into uh, the marine biologist that she is. So that was an amazing conversation just to talk about her you know, her transition from a kid and loving the ocean to then a internship to then becoming a marine biologist and moving to Costa Rica and working with sea turtles. We're going to learn so much about sea turtles, just the amazing impact they have on the ocean, the amazing impact they have on each and every one of us and why it's important to make sure that they are around for, for years and years and years to come. You know, she's going to talk about how these sea turtles have been around for millions of years, and uh, you know we want to make sure that they're around for for millions more. But uh, there's a lot of a lot of things in the ocean that's making that difficult, a lot of man-made problems. So she's doing her part to uh, to take care of as much of uh, as much of that as possible, and uh, making sure that baby sea turtles continue to make their way into the ocean. An amazing, amazing conversation. I learned so much about conservation, about sea turtles, about global warming, all this kind of stuff. Just a fascinating person. Now, she did get some uh, viral fame, uh, and uh, that was in the form of a video that's been seen, I think, 80 million times now, maybe more, because there's several different people who have posted it now and gaining kind of millions of views on these little side videos. But uh, her video was, it was several years ago, and it was her filming her, uh, one of her colleagues pulling a straw out of a sea turtle's nose. I'm sure quite a few of you that are listening have seen that. There's, you know, with 80 million views, chances are a good chunk of the population has seen that video. Uh, but it just kind of amplified that there's a lot of things in the ocean that we as humans obviously put there you know straws aren't natural to the ocean and how this straw made its way up a sea turtle's nose and luckily her and uh, her colleagues were were there to to catch the turtle and and pull it out she's actually going to give us an update on that turtle and tell us uh, exactly what happened to the turtle after the uh, that famous video so just an amazing conversation you're going to learn so much about marine biology a ton about all the different species of sea turtles in the world. You're going to learn about how we can help and all do our part from, you know, no matter if you live on right on uh, the coast of an ocean, whether you're thousands of miles landlocked and never seen an ocean, something that we all can do to, to help uh, keep the ocean a, uh, a good place. And, and it's, she, he's, she's going to kind of tell us why it's important to us all, no matter where you live, to, uh, to make sure that, ocean is sustainable and it's healthy. So without further ado, here is Christine Figener. I'm here today with Christine Figener. 
Dr. Figener. Um, but yeah, please introduce yourself. Yeah, I am by trade a marine biologist applying my science to conservation and in particular to sea turtle conservation. I am based in Costa Rica, but I also work for a foundation that is based in the U.S. trying to inspire people to use less plastic in their everyday lives. Yeah, and I want to kind of break down all of those areas you just mentioned, but let's kind of start at the beginning. I know your passion for science and the water started pretty early, so talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, that passion from a young age. Yeah, I think, I mean, my, my friends always tell me that know me since kindergarten, that I was probably the only kid that they knew that already knew in kindergarten what she wanted to be. And that was an ocean explorer. I mean, I didn't know what a biologist was back then, I guess. Mm. And um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how it started, but I'm assuming it was because I was, you know, very little when we went to vacation in Greece. And I was really scared of, you know, what was in the water because I couldn't really see it. There were just some critters under the surface and it freaked me out. And I guess I must have thrown a tantrum and my dad is not much of a person that is having that. So instead of yelling at me, though, he actually went and bought me a pair of goggles. And I looked under the water, found those animals and just thought they were incredible. And after that, I think I gradually fell in love with the water, with the ocean. I was in a swimming team, did a lot of water sports. And so, yeah, I mean, the likes of Jacusto, Hans Haas, uh, of course, also accompanied my youth. And so with that, I just had this idea of, yeah, I want to go travel the world and research cool critters that live in the ocean. Now, that's awesome. Do you remember you said it kind of started in Greece? I don't know what kind of, you know, sea life is there. Do you remember what some of the things you were seeing with those goggles are? I'm pretty sure I saw fish. That fish, is yeah. all I can. I mean, I was two years old, so I, that's yeah. like it's all very blurry. <laughs> you don't remember <laughs> everything don't... from when you were two years old? I do not. I remember certain things. For example, I remember I had like those sands, uh, what do you call them in English? You know, that you can make little sand cakes of, like plastic things. I just, you know, I think you, we called all sand castles. Just... It's a sand castle, but I mean, it's like it has different shapes. It can be an animal. So I had this one particular yeah. one that I loved. It was a blue butterfly. Okay. And I remember that I was really angry because my dad gave particularly that one to another kid while we were building a sand castle. Mm. Not cool. He could have had every other one in that set, but not the blue butterfly. <laughs> um, that, and that traumatized you ever since. So, man. I don't know. But I remember that. I also remember that I was running away, like, in the rocks and tried to climb them up. And my mom was behind me. So, it's like all little actions. And I remember that I was, you know, literally lying on my stomach and just, like, where the waves are breaking. Mm -hmm. I was looking at, like, with my goggles with my head down into the water. So that's also what I remember. But yeah, that's, that's about it. No, that's, that's awesome. That's probably more than I, I remember at that age. But so, I mean, I guess you, you talked about how you knew from a young age, what did you do to make sure that that actually happened? Because, you know, the difference between wanting to be a sea explorer and actually being good at science and all these things that you need to be to, to be able to, to achieve that? Like what, what did you put in place to, to make sure you were able to achieve, uh, you know, where you're at now? I think I never put much thought into the science part. I just remember, like I kind of had the goal, the end goal always in front of me. Um, so 
I remember that during my, you know, teenage years up until, yeah, I don't know, 14, 15, I was definitely collecting, I mean, reading everything there was in our library on any ocean animal, especially whales and dolphins that I could find. And I had these massive binders where I would copy chapters and, and uh, magazine articles, anything that was related to ocean and, and whales and dolphins and all of that. And then when we had our school internship, I think in the seventh grade, I actually applied to a local zoological garden that also had an attached uh, dolphinarium and sea lions. Because, I mean, I, I really grew up in a landlocked area, so there was no ocean anywhere close by. So that was the closest I could get to my dream. And that was really, for me, the revelation of what my path could look like. And not so much like working in a dolphinarium, but the dolphinarium also had a nonprofit that is working in South America on, 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 on um, marine mammals. And, of course, a bunch of biologists, you know, where they're going in and out that were doing their master studies, that were doing their PhD studies. And I was just in the middle of all of that as like a 13-year-old kid, just having, you know, ears like uh, rhubarb leaves and just listening in and thinking of like how that could all be my life if I once mm -hmm. I grow up. And of course, I asked questions, right? Like, what did you study? Like, what do I need to study? Is there anything in particular? And so there it was really quickly crystallizing that, first of all, I needed to master English, right? So I hadn't put much effort into it, to be quite honest. My English teacher actually, in fact, told my mom that I would never, ever learn English. Mm. <laughs> my mom's still upset about that one. <laughs> um, and she was wrong, obviously. Uh, the other thing was, uh, back in the days, it was still mandatory to have Latin in school. So mm. um, I unfortunately chose Latin as my second foreign language. Uh, which by the time I actually had to go to university was not even a requirement anymore. Um, yeah, but I think that was mainly the things that I really thought about because I, I have to say I was never a bad student, so I was never struggling with any of the subjects. So I wasn't mm. really worrying about, you know, math or any of that. It was just kind of like I knew if I wanted it, I could do it. Mm. I was actually more of a lazy butt and just like doing the minimum necessary to pass by with a you know, A or B and yeah, anyway, so that wasn't really the concern. So yeah, but then kind of mapping that out, I, I knew, for example, that in order to learn English better, it wouldn't be enough to just have English in school. So I went for an exchange here to the US um, to, you know, really learn English properly. Um, of course, the legend thing probably has helped me with other languages in the end but I hated it <laughs> I still I'm like oh my god I could have learned so many other good languages uh, in seven years but anyways yeah and by the time I, I I had to choose where I would go I also knew okay I will definitely want to go at least to a university that has a very solid you know basic education in biology and I did so I applied I got in and that is how my career as a biologist started very awesome. Yeah. When we're talking about languages, one, I feel like maybe all these scientific terms that you have to know now, Latin probably, probably didn't hurt you there. So I'm trying to give you a little bit of, of help with that Latin. <laughs> you know what? Actually, it's a book. Yeah. First of all, most names are either from Latin or Greek, like right. all the smart words. It's not even Latin, just Greek is just as prevalent. And second, most of those scientific names of like actual species are just like, 
made up names of like yeah. people that are you know changed into something latin so yeah yeah i, I try to give you some some latin but i, I guess it's not going to work um you know you're in costa rica we're going to talk about that later but why we're on languages have you had to learn spanish too i've been to costa rica don't know spanish obviously i can i can say you know pura vida with the best of them but that's about all i got from costa rica yeah so i didn't know spanish when I first came to Costa Rica and I learned it pretty much in my first year and a half while I was here. There, I have to admit, probably my Latin did help me just because it's a Latin-based language, right? So I think just understanding Latin and how it's structured, the grammar. So I think any language that is based in Latin kind of functions the same way. So it is making things easier. Yeah. And that is kind of, yeah, how I learned. I, I mean, I pretty much I'm self-taught. So my Spanish is definitely not as formal and as good as my English, I would say. But it's fluent. Uh, I can write reports. I mean, I, yeah, I speak fluently Spanish. It's just, I think the confidence that I have in English is just not existing in, in Spanish just yet. I might not ever. Well, I feel like two two languages to be able to be Super confident and fluent, way better than a lot of people. So that's that's really awesome. Um, let's talk about, I always like to break things down. Let's kind of talk to that, you know, two, three-year-old Christine that was knows ocean explorer. They don't know what a, a marine biologist is and tell people exactly what it means to be a marine biologist and maybe more specifically a conservation biologist, which is, I believe, kind of what your specialization is. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on which marine biologist you are asking, right? For me, it meant going out, traveling the world, being in the field, working hands-on, you know, in the ocean, close to the ocean with animals. That is how I envisioned it. And that is pretty much, that was always my goal. So I feel sorry for all the biologists that are just sitting just in front of the computer or just uh, standing just in a lab. I mean, that can be part of your job as well, of course. Um, and I mean, to be quite honest, a lot of people are way more comfortable in the laboratory as well than they are in the field, because I think a lot of people romanticize working in the field as well. So every time I talk about that, I work with sea turtles, you know, everybody gets these like laced over eyes. And I don't know, they envision me strolling down the beach, the palm trees swaying in the wind and the stars are kind of glistening over me. And well, the reality is a lot of times, you know, not as pretty. First of all, while I'm strolling, I'm also getting bitten up by some sand flies, you know, that crawl into every part of naked skin. Uh, then it might be pouring down rain at the, that very moment. Uh, as most of the nights. And then of course, I'm also smelly because I'm already sweaty for hours and uh, probably covered in, in sand and turtle ghosts. So that's probably more <laughs> realistic mm -hmm. than, you know, this idea of a Caribbean getaway. Uh, and I think it's also very physical, right? So that means we are walking a lot, um, at least here in Costa Rica, where we can't access beaches with uh, any kind of motorized vehicles, which even if we were allowed to, it's pretty much inaccessible. We have several rivers that need to be crossed or swam through. Uh, the beach sometimes gets really small. It's not very even. Um, but that means we're walking about 15 to 20 kilometers per night. Mm. And of course, that is, you know, just like exhausting. And you don't sleep enough because we're working a lot of times at night when we're working with nesting females. Um, 
So that means it could be a lot more comfortable if you're having a nine to five job Monday to Friday in the laboratory, right? Mm -hmm. And you get home punctually to your husband and kids. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's more my reality. And then, of course, in between, I do have a little workstation set up where I'm sitting on right now, where I can, you know, transcribe data, where I can do video conferences, um, write scientific articles, those kind of things. Yeah. We, we, we talked about, obviously, you work with sea turtles. What made you go into that particular area? I have kind of seen another clip with you, and I know that wasn't originally what you wanted. I think it was humpback whales. So what, what transitioned you to, uh, to sea turtles? Yeah, right. No, I exactly. I, wa I wanted to be more than anything a humpback whale researcher. But, you know, it's life sometimes is. Uh, I went to Costa Rica during my master's studies as a research assistant just to kind of try it out. I had never in my life seen a nesting sea turtle. I had seen, I think, like turtles in captivity. And I saw one turtle in, in Egypt uh, snor uh, snorkeling. And so I, the first night that I saw a nesting leatherback turtle, that was definitely the moment I fell in love with sea turtles. And of course, the entire season after, like, you know, working with them. It is just such an incredible animal, first of all, and it's such an incredible workplace as well. And there's not many, if any, you know, large marine life that lets you get so close to them without having to restrain them, without having to even, you know, sedate them, um, you know, for this brief moment when they come to lay their eggs. And, and you know, if you behave yourself, cautiously you can partake in this whole process right you can collect data you can be really close to this animal and it's just so awe-inspiring I mean you're sitting on the beach with the, a remnant of the dinosaur time pretty much right because leatherbacks have been around for 90 million years it's just absolutely incredible I mean I don't I don't know anybody actually that has seen a nesting leatherback that wasn't somehow touched um, maybe you they didn't become a marine conservation biologist afterwards, but they definitely fell in love with sea turtles, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I want you to tell us, you, you already kind of started that started it, but I want you to tell us a little bit more about the sea turtles, the leatherback sea turtles. I know, I'm sure you've got some, uh, some fun facts. So tell us a little bit about the, the turtles you work with so much. Yeah, so I work mainly with uh, three species. So I work with leatherbacks. Uh, I actually wrote my PhD over, yeah, over olive ridleys, which don't nest on the Caribbean where I'm sitting right now, but on the Pacific side. Um, but they do these absolutely stunningly crazy synchronized mass nestings. Mm -hmm. So there's only about less than a dozen beaches worldwide where you can observe those synchronized mass nestings, which are called Arribada. It's a Spanish name for arrival. And Costa Rica actually has in now three Arribada beaches. Um, and we also have one of the largest in the world. So in Austria, which is one of those beaches, you can see about once a month, um, most of the year, about half a million turtles that come at the same time to nest. Mm. So if you ever have seen the second uh, season of Our Blue Planet, um, I think in the very first episode, actually, they do like a drone overflight over Austrian and you can see like all the females that are just like crawling on top of each other on the, on the sand. It's absolutely insane and impressive. So if mm. you 
ever get a chance to see that, definitely recommendable. Mm. Um, I also work with hawksbills. It is uh, one of the most, well, most endangered species of sea turtles. Um, unfortunately, we have managed in the past few hundred years to really get them, yeah, at the brink of extinction, mainly because they have a beautiful shell, tortoise shell. Um, you might have heard it. A lot of people actually don't even know it comes from a sea turtle. They kind of associate more like a pattern with that tortoise shell, uh, because nowadays you can actually buy tortoise shell in plastic, right? So it, it, it tries to imitate that pattern, but it's not the original one anymore. But back in the days, all of that came from the shell of a sea turtle. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, colonial uh, powers have, um, well, pretty much exploited the Caribbean in the Pacific Islands where hawksbills were nesting. And Japan was one of the biggest importers of, of, of hawksbill shell as well, called Beko. Uh, I mean, they make beautiful jewelry out of it, beautiful headpieces and all kinds of other things. But of course, that doesn't justify of what has happened to the populations. And now we're you know, trying really hard to restore them. And then, of course, lastly, my absolute uh, favorites, the leatherbacks. Uh, leatherbacks usually nest in tropical areas. So we do have them nesting on, on both coastlines in Costa Rica. And for many years, I've also worked on, on you know, the uh, nesting season on both coastlines. But it's really cool because they are foraging really far up north and very far down south which is surprising if you know that sea turtles are actually what we call ectotherm or cold-blooded. So that means they cannot regulate their own body temperature. So they're completely depending on the environment to keep them warm enough to pretty much go about their lives. Um, they can float a little bit on the surface, you know, to let the sun warm them up. But other than that, I mean, the, wa the waters that most sea turtles are found are about 24 degrees Celsius. Um, leatherbacks, however, forage, for example, in front of Nova Scotia, in front of uh, Wales, England. And those waters, if you ever dip your toes into the North Sea, for example, they are more like 90 degrees Celsius, right? So way low below the, the, the actual um, yeah, ideal body temperature. And the reason that they can do that is that they have these absolute incredible adaptations. Uh, first of all, they have this really thick fatty tissue that keeps them warm. It's similar to the blubber that whales and dolphins have as well. Then, because of course they can't just shed the fatty tissue when they're coming into warmer waters, they can pretty much selectively open their blood vessels into the periphery, so beyond the fatty tissue and close them down so that the blood only circulates within the core. Hmm. Then, because they're so ginormous right i mean a lot of people don't even know that leatherbacks exist right when i say sea turtle they think of like the finding nemo heart-shelled type of turtle but leatherbacks are the only member of a family that is actually soft-shelled and so they have these ridges very leathery skin hence the name leatherback and they're ginormous so they are pretty much longer than i am tall and i'm about five foot seven so that's huge right and i mean they weigh about 300 to 600 kilograms I'm really bad, sorry, with the uh, U.S. metrics, so please excuse me. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and because they're so large, their surface area is actually rather small in comparison. So that means they don't even lose as much heat over their surface. And that's what, what we call gigantothermy. And, you know, the fatty tissue is not just the entire covering the entire body, but it's even covering the esophagus, right? So when they're feeding 
up in the cold waters and they swallow water, that water is not even able to cool them from the inside because they're even there having insulation, which is really, really awesome. And then lastly, they're even able to generate a certain amount of body heat through digestion. So that's the other thing. And of course, they have like cow, uh, counter current heat exchange in their flippers and all this kind of really cool stuff. Um, so they are perfectly adapted, even as an active firm, to live in very cold waters. So fun facts, enough fun facts. <laughs> the, yeah, you exceeded my expectations with that question. That's awesome for sure. Tell us a little bit about the threats to, to sea turtles. Um, you know, you mentioned one that nests half a million at a time. So first, before we get to the threats, are there are most sea turtles threatened or endangered? Um, and then also, what uh, what threats do they they currently see? Yeah, so all sea turtles are pretty much listed on the red list of endangered species that is um, managed by the IUCN. Uh, the only sea turtle species, so we have seven sea turtle species worldwide, and the only species that is listed as data deficient is the flatback turtle, which is an endemic turtle, which means it's only found in a very specific area, and in that case, in the north of Australia. But the country of Australia, it's like they themselves actually list the turtle as endangered. So, yeah, all turtles are endangered to different degrees. And the threats are unfortunately not just one. I a lot of times talk about the apocalyptic writers. So because it's not just that I can say, you know, what is the worst threat? A lot of times people want me to just like name one because that would make it so much easier. And I want people to understand that it is not that easy. There isn't just really just one threat. And moreover, those threats that exist actually form these absolute horrible synergies. So hence the apocalyptic writers. So we have for once um, habitat destruction, uh, habitat fragmentation in the case as well, uh, where, you know, for example, sea levels are rising, we're losing nesting area, we are building houses on coastlines, and because of that, nesting areas are disappearing. And then, of course, we have climate change, we have rising um, sea levels, which, for example, causes habitat destruction. Uh, but we also have the rising temperatures, which, first of all, is shifting the distribution or the, you know, where turtles exist or can exist. Um, but which is even worse is that the sex of a sea turtle is defined during its incubation by the temperature. So that means they don't have sex chromosomes as we have, but the temperature is actually determining factor if it will be a, a boy or a girl, right? Lower temperatures lead to more boys, higher temperatures lead to more girls. And because we're having rising temperatures, we are actually seeing a massive increase in females that are produced. So in most populations, we are kind of above 80% already. And of course, I mean, you could argue, yeah, well, it's not necessary to have that many men in a population to keep a population stable, but we will get to the point where there will probably not be enough males anymore to, you know, fertilize all the existing females. So that is, that's climate change. Um, then we also have issues with uh, pollution, and it's not just one type of pollution. Of course, we have oil spills. Uh, and they're actually way more common than people think just because, you know, nobody talks about it. Like 
in the case of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in, in 2010. Um, there are way more little ones out there that, you know, cause harm. Uh, we also have massive issues with kind of an invisible pollution, which is the fertilizer runoff and pesticide runoff from our agriculture. Uh, because people always need to keep in mind, you know, every river will eventually lead to the ocean. So whatever we put out in our environment, even on land, it will find its way into the ocean. So we have problems with um, red tides that are, you know, kind of algae bloom, toxic algae bloom that can kill turtles. We have issues with um, also a, a disease that is called fibropapilloma, which is mainly found in green turtles. And green turtles are the pretty much only species that feed as adults, mainly on sea grasses. So they're the, kind of the herbivorous or the vegetarian turtles. And the seagrass is, of course, highly impacted by fertilizers. And the, the, the disease is caused by a kind of herpes-type virus. Um, that is actually triggered by an amino acid that is produced, you know, in higher concentrations because of fertilizer runoff. So that is kind of like very, you know, in a nutshell, uh, that's that's the other type of pollution. And then, of course, lastly, as pollution, we have plastic, right? Um, we already since the 1980s have documented sea turtles feeding on plastic. For the longest time, we thought that they just mistake it because visually it might look like a jellyfish if you have a floating plastic bag in the ocean. But recent um, recent study actually showed that because of the plastic that accumulates a biofilm, it smells even like food. And if you're given the choice to a turtle, um, they actually preferentially feed on plastic so and maybe even the color is enticing to them so that's the other problem and of course it can be ingestion that means you know just um yeah some problems inside that either the, the the digestive tract gets blocked or perforated but even the amount of plastics that can be eaten and the toxins that are also ingested with that can lower your survival rate and then of course we have issues with other things like for example entanglement right which is uh, can be a plastic bag. We have found turtles in in, in plastic tires uh, or like rubber tires. So all of that is an issue. And then lastly, of course, the fishing net, which leads me to my next apocalyptic ride, and that's the overexploitation, because you know starting there is the industrial fishing industry. So there are masses of turtles that are dying every year in. Um, as bycatch, pretty much as non-target species in, in those uh, set nets of the industrial fisher fisheries. Very, very sad because sea turtles have a very low survival rate when they're small, but they have actually a pretty good survival rate once they are adults and they don't have many natural predators anymore. And exactly those animals are the ones that are dying in those fishing nets, right? It's the one out of a thousand that pretty much made it to sexual maturity and then they end up there dying. And um, the problem is really the type of nets that are used by the industrial fishing industry and that there's nobody really that checks the nets for sometimes day on end. Uh, and by that time, the turtles are dead. And of course, the nets are made from plastic. So there we go, right back to one of the other apocalyptic providers. And in the case of sea turtles, overexploitation also comes in the form of uh, poaching. So we have still people that are poaching eggs we have people that poaching entire turtles either for their meat or for their shell um and that of course is adding uh, another pressure so we had decades 
not so long ago in the 80s, 90s, 70s as well, where here in Costa Rica, pretty much 100% of all turtle nests were uh, poached on our beaches, right? So that means we have a massive generation gap. And I'm sure it's not just Costa Rica. There were Asian countries as well, where even nowadays, the poaching is still ongoing. So all of that taken together is uh, a lot of stuff that sea turtles are, you know, facing. And um, unless we are helping and hopefully, you know, raising awareness about those facts and, and, and also showcasing of how everybody at home can do their part to minimize those threats, they don't have much of a chance of a future in our planet, unfortunately. Yeah. And you mentioned, you said you're saying the word poaching. So it makes me think, is it illegal to take eggs from, from nest in Costa Rica and most places in the world? Is it illegal to, you know, harvest adult sea turtles, most places in the world, obviously legality and what actually happens is not always the same, but is there laws in place, most places to at least try to help? Yeah. So uh, generally, yes, most places in the world, uh, it's completely illegal to poach or in any shape or form use turtles exploitively. So that means, you know, eggs, uh, meat or whatever. And there are some countries that have for certain demographics quotas. So especially if it has something to do with indigenous communities, um, they might be allowed to turk a certain amount of animals per year um, where they allowed to, 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 you know, to legally uh, harvest them. Um, here in Costa Rica, we actually have one beach and one beach only where it is allowed to harvest sea turtle eggs legally. And that is exactly in Austria now where this synchronized mass nesting is happening because the argument is since there is so many turtles and this uh, synchronized mass nesting happens not just on one day, but over the course of five to seven days, that the eggs that are laid within the first you know, two days pretty much and not having a great chance of survival because they're very likely getting dug up by females that will, um, you know, come onto the beach to a later point. And so within the first 72 hours, the village of Ostrinat is allowed to take those eggs. And then under more or less regulated circumstances are allowed to sell them you know, in the country. So they come in like, you know, sealed bags and it is not very foolproof, unfortunately. Um, but the idea behind it is to to really just kind of allow those particular eggs from Austin now to be sold in, in Costa Rica. Gotcha. Yeah. And we talked about the threats. This is a question I, I hate to, I hate to ask, but I think it's important just because of, you know, the way that people are and, and the way that society is. But why, why should people care to to conserve sea turtles why should they care about all of this yeah i mean i understand when people are very disconnected from the ocean even you know and then next step sea turtles who cares about sea turtles especially if i live i don't know in arizona somewhere in the desert right um but the truth is that you know we always talk about our green lungs that are producing so much oxygen in fact is that the ocean actually produces more oxygen for us than the you know the rainforests of, of 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 south america africa and asia um and the marine ecosystem is also a massive carbon sink right so in the now times where we are you know fearing climate change we need our ocean to be healthy to absorb at least part of the emission that we're creating and 
it is really, I mean, we will not be able to survive as a species on this planet if our oceans are not healthy. So that is the bottom line, right? I mean, that is kind of what everybody needs to understand first. And then when we're diving into what does it mean to have a healthy ocean, we kind of need to really dive into the complexity of, you know, ecosystems, of how organisms very, you know, delicately depend on each other, interact with each other. And just to give some examples, so for example, in the case of hawksbills, um, they are specialized feeders. So that means their diet cons well, constitutes mainly uh, sponges. Sponges are very, you know, very simple animal um, that live in yeah, reefs pretty much, but they grow really quickly. Whereas coral reefs do not grow very quickly, but coral reefs are actually part of, you know, the pipes that do create a lot of oxygen for us um, because they are these, I mean, they're almost like rainforests. Rainforests have an incredible biodiversity, so do have corals, right? Fish come there. There's a lot of life around coral reefs. And so sponges tend to outcompete corals if they are too many around. And so hawksbills have this very, very important job of keeping sponges in check. So if you have hawksbills around, you know, the sponges are not, do not get to the point where they really endanger reefs, right? But when we don't have hawksbills anymore, sponges start to kind of, you know, overpower the coral reefs. And that's just the one example. We have seven species of sea turtles, right? So another example is the leatherback turtle. So we already have issues with overfishing. Um, we're taking way more than can be produced by the fish, right? And babies. And um, baby fish, kind of exist first in larval stages and are part of the zooplankton, right? And zooplankton is the main um, diet of jellyfish and jellyfish is the main diet of leatherbacks. So the problem is because we're having so much fertilizers running off in our oceans, we have massive jellyfish blooms, our jellyfish eating all the larval fish that would otherwise also be part of, you know, the recruitment of producing more and more fish again. And if we wouldn't have leatherbacks that keep jellyfish populations in check, we probably have had a massive problem with, you know, jellyfish eating too many larval fish. And also jellyfish are already a problem in touristy areas, right? All the um, parts of the, of, of the world that depend on tourism, tourism or tourists don't like jellyfish blooms, right? If you go anywhere on the coast and you have like millions of jellyfish, a lot of people actually leave they cancel their hotels they leave and it's very detrimental to local economy and so this is you know it's so complex i mean this is just like a few examples and there's so much more that we don't even know by the time a lot of times we only find out when things become extinct that we were like oh shoot that was actually way more important than we thought and that is usually then when it's too late right so we need to make sure that all of that stays as it was, right? And at this point, it's not just about conserving. A lot of times it's even about restoring, you know, trying to figure out like what would have it been like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and getting back to that stage. Yeah, no, I think that's important to kind of make all of those those connections. And those are really powerful connections as well. So I appreciate that. Um, what? So what is your role in, in all this day in and day out? I know you, you know, going to these nesting areas, you're collecting data, what, what's some of the other parts of your, your role in this uh, conservation and uh, rejuvenation portion? Yeah, so, I mean, talking about threats and everything, I think you can already kind of gauge that it sounds like a massive 
problem, like an elephant of a problem. Hmm. And I think it is sometimes very overwhelming, not just for the listeners right now, but for me as well, for everybody else that is involved. And I think over the years, you, you kind of come to terms with what you are, what's feasible even to do, you know, where you put your energies because you cannot tackle every single problem, right? So you kind of have to think about how, and you, I mean, you don't have an infinite amount of time on this planet. You don't have an infinite amount of time in your day. Like you have to really think about where do you most effectively put your efforts. And so I have decided at one point that I'm actually going to burn the candle on both ends. So I'm working in the very small. So I'm on the ground um, working on nesting beaches and in foraging areas, working with local communities that are, you know, some members are poaching, for example, fishermen that are trying to improve their, their, their catching, um, the catching techniques and trying to just help um, that there is a new generation of turtles making their way into the water every single year, doing a lot in the in 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 the sense of local, you know, education of school children, getting them excited about sea turtles and and make them understand of why they're so important to our ecosystem. But then I'm also have decided many years ago that you know that I also need to kind of connect to the global community a little bit more that people that are not on the ground like I am or the local communities understand that even if you are living somewhere in the middle of nowhere, there is things that you can do that will help us in the mm. broader scheme of things, right? So how do you live your life, for example? Like how much emission do you create? Are you contributing to climate change or not? Are you voting for the right politicians that will do something about it? Are you using plastic in your life, right? Can you reduce your plastic? Because once your plastic is out of your house, it will be in a landfill uh, and eventually might end up in the ocean because 80% of the plastic found in our ocean is from land-based sources. Um, how do you eat? I mean, uh, first of all, climate change, of course, you know, animal products are a problem for climate change, but... Also, like we said, pesticides, fertilizers, the way of how we're farming, how we're producing our, you know, everything, veggies, it's not very healthy. So do I, or am I more conscious about it? Do I grow my own, you know, my own uh, food or do I shop in a store that is a little bit more conscious about it? All those things are little things that you can do um, at home that, you know, will already make a huge impact. And if you think you're just one person, believe me, there's so many million people out there that care. Mm -hmm. And I just see how the collective can be so powerful. And this is really what I try to, you know, make people understand it's that you're not by yourself, right? There's so many people all over the world that are fighting the good fight. And I just try to, 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 to really, I don't know, to convey that there is power in you know make in, in individual actions of course not everything can be solved by that but that's how we can start and feel also like we are somehow in control of this big huge mess that we have created or ancestors have created yeah i i love all of that for sure i want you to tell us about i guess kind of what uh what made you a, a little bit of a, a well-known person when it comes to that viral video talk a little bit about that yeah, my uh, actually claim to fame is a little bit strange. So I uh, am a biologist. I do have my PhD, but I do also have a viral video that I filmed um, seven years ago, almost by now. 
where we found a sea turtle that had a plastic straw lodged in its nose, which was a very um, yeah, surprising and very horrifying. And my colleague removed that straw and I filmed that and then we uploaded it to the internet and it became a viral sensation and raised a lot of, a lot of um, awareness for the issue of plastic pollution. Sometimes a little bit misdirected because, you know, it is not just about the straws. It's about plastic in general and especially single-use plastics. Uh, but I think it has started a good thing. I think there's very few people in the world that haven't seen that video. And um, I think everybody that has seen the video, it has, made, it has done something to them, right? Because everybody felt a little bit guilty, probably, because we've all used plastic straws in the past. And it for me, I mean, as a scientist, I mean, that is... We're usually pretty nerdy. We're not people, pe uh, people, and we are also sometimes a little bit tech challenge, which sounds weird as a scientist. But you know, we're not very apt in using social media and all of that jazz. So, with the whole video thing, I have really learned of how to harness social media for mm -hmm. my messaging of how to communicate science, of really not to talk to my other science fellows, but to really talk to non-scientists, get them excited about certain aspects of sea turtle biology, about the threats that they're facing, and hopefully that way really get people excited about doing something themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely, for sure. And what I wonder too, because um, I've just kind of, I think it's a relatively short clip um, what, uh, you know, I was always think after these videos, everyone just scrolls through these, these things so quickly and then just like, oh, okay. I mean, this turtle, once you took the, the straw out, I mean, it was uh, obviously his nose was bleeding. Well, I mean, what, what became of this turtle? Do you, you think that it was something that was a mortal danger or do you think that he, that he wound up being okay? Well, first of all, we actually know what happened to him because we do tag our turtles. Oh, good. And so um, actually two years later, uh, one of my assistants that was on the boat as well during that incident was harpoon fishing out in the ocean and uh, found a turtle that was mating with, with another female and he had tags on and so he just kind of wrote down the tags and sent them to me not knowing that it was that particular turtle, but it was him. So he was fine. He was just checking up with a checking up with the girls again. <laughs> so that made me happy. But the thing is, though, I think while we weren't so concerned about his um, welfare was because sea turtles are incredibly resilient. I mean, in my career, I have seen already severely injured sea turtles that somehow were still able to come onto the beach to lay her eggs uh, that were able to, you know, go about their lives with, you know, sometimes just two flippers or even just one flipper with massive boat propeller slices in their carapace. And there was no veterinarian anywhere close by that could have helped them. And they still, you know, healed. Of course, they had scars. But so this little straw in the nose was not really something that I thought is going to kill the turtle. Mm -hmm. um, he was fine. And we're happy that he's fine. And he does have no clue that he's now pretty much the poster child of an entire movement. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny for sure. So you you know mentioned things that people can do from home to to kind of help the movement. You know the the cause, which I think is just the cause of the greater good of the the world. But what can people do specifically to to help you in your efforts? 
Yeah, well, of course, I mean, all the actions we were talked about, like using less plastic and all of that helps uh, kind of thinking about, you know, how much meat you're consuming, where you're buying your stuff. That's definitely one thing that will help in the bigger scheme. But you can also, I mean, we're always happy to get some, you know, monthly supporters. So there is a platform that works similar to Patreon. It is just for conservationists, so people that actually try to, uh, you know, conserve species to 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 do something in that area. It's called Milky Wire, uh, and you can either give a one-time donation or you can just like I think it starts with like three dollars per month. So that means that if you would invite me to one coffee per month, uh, you can literally support our work here in Costa Rica, working with local communities, trying to create as many baby turtles as possible. That's uh, definitely yeah the easiest way probably. Yeah. So, do you work for a, like a a company that's doing this, or is it mostly crowd sourcing that is helping you, you know, do all of this work? Well, so I have my own NGO in Costa Rica called mm. Costa Rican Alliance for Sea Turtle Conservation Science. Mm. We're small, we're a grassroots organization. I also have a nonprofit company which does kind of consulting work, which actually raises most of the funds <laughs> for mm. the work that I'm doing. So anytime I have like a speaking engagement or whatever, and I'm getting paid for it, that actually goes straight back into the conservation work. Um, and yeah, so I'm not working for companies, it's all our own things. Um, and yeah, we're just trying to stay afloat during the pandemic, trying to also hire local, um, local assistants mainly because we're trying to keep people from poaching and that is the easiest done if we're actually somehow you know providing an alternative income to the community and at this point we're actually I mean we have a huge banana plantation right in front but we're the second largest employer in this area so I'm really proud of that to be honest absolutely so where do you hope you know you said this is at a, a grassroots level you've been doing in the work for a good while but where do you hope things you know are five, 10 years from now, uh, do you want to, to continue on with your time in Costa Rica? I know you talked about leatherback all over the place. So is Costa Rica where you're going to continue to focus things or where do you hope five years from now you're, you're at? So, yeah, I mean, I have been in Costa Rica for almost 16 years now. So that's definitely my chosen home. And I don't think I want to leave here anytime soon. Um, I could envision maybe having like a second home somewhere else sometimes if there is something to do for me. But yeah, I mean, I just hope that in 10 years, I, you know, I can just see the, the fruits of my labor that I can see that the local communities are at a point where they can, you know, manage most of their stuff by themselves. I mean, we're getting there little by little, right? I mean, it's a lot of times there's a lot of old structures in the, in the conservation world where, you know, white people come pretend to be the white saviors and I really don't want to be that person so I much rather you know build skills so people can take over eventually and I hope that maybe in 10 years we somehow got a grip on climate change on on all these absolutely horrible environmental practices that we're still using to you know sustain our own life and understanding that this is not how we can continue to live right so that is really what I'm hoping that the new generation is really thinking very differently than the old people, the dinosaurs that kind of need to, yeah, stop making politics, making the big decisions because it's not really helping 
um, yeah, but I hope, I hope, I mean, I'm a critical optimist. Otherwise, I think I couldn't do my job. So I have to believe that there is a chance that everything will become better. Um, because otherwise, it's really not much use of even trying. I understand that for sure. How can people connect with you? They want to uh, kind of follow your work and, uh, and connect. Um, make sure that you plug that, uh, what, what is it, Milky Wire? Plug that again, but then your uh, connection points on social media too. Yeah. So first of all, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I think that's probably my biggest community as a sea turtle biologist. Also, my webpage is seaturtlebiologist.com. There you can pretty much find all the different social media links, also the best ways of how to support my work, including Milky Wire, the platform that we're using to uh, collect donations for the work here that we're doing in Costa Rica. And yeah, on that webpage is actually also my email. So anybody that would like to get in contact is probably the easiest way to just go seaturtlebiologist.com and there you will find anything that you will need. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been enlightening for sure. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. So that was Dr. Figner, just an amazing person doing truly amazing work, something that's helping us all. She's doing work that's benefiting each and every one of us. If you think about all of the baby sea turtles she's helping hatch, all of the turtles she's making sure succeed and make their way into the ocean. She mentioned just how impactful each of these different uh, sea turtle species are and why they're so important. You know, whether it's making sure the jellyfish aren't taking over the the beach resorts, whether it is making sure that the sea turtles are eating the sponges who are making sure that, uh, you know, the the coral reef has the opportunity to grow. Just a lot of really impactful things. So, and she has her her hand on, on a lot of those things. So, really appreciate Dr. Figner's time. Really appreciate her just being who she is and doing the work that she's doing. I really, really enjoyed speaking with her and learning so much about conservation, about marine biology, and about sea turtles. Just fascinating, fascinating stuff. I do want to correct the record on something I said in the intro. That is about that video with the straw. I said it has 80 million views. Excuse me, I was only I was only short by about 120 million views. It has over 200 million views. So pretty sure that you have seen that video. And if you haven't, I will put a link to it in the description. Um, I'll do the longer form. There's two different videos, one shorter, one's longer, and combine those, and there's where you get 200 million views. So just an amazing person. Just in this video, you can see the amazing work she's doing, and that's just a short, short part of it. So really, really, really enjoyed speaking with her. I'm sure you enjoyed hearing from her. Hopefully, uh, you know, it's inspired you to do just a little bit more when it comes to... Uh, helping the ocean you know it, it just small it, small changes i think from all of us are going to make big impacts so thanks for being here thanks dr figner for being here do check out all her social media of course check us out to instagram at not enough podcast on facebook jacksonf.com go leave those five stars i really appreciate that on apple and on spotify on apple if you're using that go leave a written review that's always nice too and uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dr. Figner, for being here. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest. 
who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.